and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. I just ran up the uh, stairs. I'm a little, <laughs> a little winded. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. You know, um, we this is uh, we're coming to the close of the holiday season. It's uh, the first week in 2021. We're not, not while we're recording, but you know, like play play along with us. <laughs> we're pretending like it's the first week in January for us year. now, but it is for you. A new, a new year. year, a beautiful new year, end of the holidays, ready to start our lives, and we have been gifted, I would say, recently with a lot of excellent guests. On oh my our show. gosh, absolutely! Just so many wonderful guests, and you know, we have another one today. We do indeed. Coming to us all the way from Tennessee, we have Christine Welchel. Hello, Christine. Hello, Christine. Hello, Lauren and Julia. Welcome. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on. I am glad to be here. Now, as we mentioned, um, as we've mentioned with a couple of other guests that we've had in the in the last couple of months too, Christine is one of the last people that we saw in person when we were in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly sounds like everybody and their brother in the trivia world was in Chicago, but they were. Uh, and we met <laughs> and we met a lot of them. Uh, and we met Christine and it was so great. So, uh, Christine, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I live in Spring Hill, Tennessee, about 30 miles south of Nashville. I am a, a piano and violin teacher and also a church organist. And I have three children. They are 11, 12, and 15. Uh, my 12-year-old is about to have a birthday, so she'll be 13 soon. Oh, boy. And as you can imagine, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah. Are they allowed to listen imagine. to the show? Are they allowed to listen? <laughs> we do. Have, they we do drop okay. some swears. That's okay. Well, no, they're, they're very tolerant of my trivia hobby, <laughs> but that's the best way for me to clear the room is to start doing anything to do with trivia pretty much. So, so you're not getting like some instant street cred by being on a podcast. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, sorry. Oh, fine. <laughs> we I, I would, I would love for them to listen to your show, but it is. <laughs> we're like, One day. we're like cool, cool teachers. <laughs> Regular teachers. Cool teachers. For them. Trivia is that thing that mom does. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, They'll mom, learn. Mom's yeah. <laughs> so we're very excited. You gave us kind of like a a couple of different topics that you would be willing to talk about, and and we 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 all agreed on one. So why don't you go yeah. ahead and take it away, Christine? Well, today I'm going to talk about the life and work of Lucy Maud Montgomery. Awesome. This is so exciting. So Lucy Maud Montgomery um, is probably Canada's most widely read author of all time. She published 20 novels, 530 short stories, 500 poems, and 30 essays. And um, since her first novel was published in 1908, her works have sold an estimated 50 million copies worldwide. Gosh. So very widely read author. Yama um, mama. She is best known as the author of Anne of Green Gables. That was mm -hmm. her first published novel that set her on the road to literary success. Anne was um, 
a very, of course, has been a very loved character for all of these years. Um, Mark Twain referred to her as the most charming character since Alice, referring to Alice in Wonderland. And he wow. didn't like anybody. Yeah, that's I a know, rare compliment. He liked Anne. (laughs) So Lucy Maud Montgomery actually hated her first name. Uh, She went by her middle name, Maud. So that's how I'm going to refer to her when talking about her life. But she published under her initials, L.M. Montgomery. Mm -hmm. She was born on November 30th, 1874 on Prince Edward Island, which is Canada's smallest province. Um, I'm going to to pause here and talk about Prince Edward Island for a minute because the island was so integral to her writing because she lived on the island she loved the island almost everything she wrote was set on prince edward island okay so it is uh you just can't talk about one without talking about the other and that includes you can't really talk about prince edward island without talking about montgomery because Mm -hmm. she has been so significant to tourism there Mm -hmm. So Prince Edward Island is one of Canada's three maritime provinces. Uh, Like I said before, it's the smallest province, both in size and population. Uh, It's located in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, about 120 miles north of Halifax in Nova Scotia. It has two main cities, Charlottetown and Summerside, and those cities are on the southern shore of the island. But the rest of the island is pretty much rural, even today, and the main economic activity is farming. Hmm. Geographically, it kind of has about everything as far as beautiful scenery. The coastline has the long beaches and the dunes and the red sandstone cliffs and saltwater marshes, bays, harbors. The sand dunes have all these different bird species and rare plants. Uh, the island's climate is a lot milder than other parts of Canada you know, um, because the Gulf of St. Lawrence is pretty warm. Okay. So the winters aren't as harsh. The temperature in summer doesn't get too high around the mid-80s. The springs are pretty cold until the sea ice melts. Usually that doesn't happen until late April or early May. They have really pleasant autumns because the Gulf waters delay the frost. The inner part of the island is very pastoral with woods and rolling hills. So overall, we're talking about just a lovely, picturesque place to be. And that was certainly true when Maude was growing up there. Mm. So I'm going to give just a brief history of the island. Um, Cartier was the first European explorer to see the island in 1534. And France claimed it in 1604 as part of the colony they called Acadia. Mm. And they named it Ile Saint-Jean. Sorry, I took Spanish. My French pronunciation is not me both, Christine. In the 1700s, this island was the site of repeated fighting between the French and the British. Not surprising, because where weren't the French and the British fighting each other in the 1700s? So true. And it ended up with the French handing over Ile Saint-Jean to the British as part of the Treaty of Paris in 1763. First, the British anglicized the name to St. John. Then in 1798, they changed it to Prince Edward Island, to distinguish it from the other parts of Canada that were already named St. John. (laughs) There's only so many, you know? Right. As far as population goes, um, it's important to know for Maud Montgomery's background that Prince Edward Island had the highest proportion of Scottish immigrants in Canada. Mm. And because they were relatively isolated, the Scottish Highlanders who immigrated in the 1700s were more able to preserve their culture and avoid outside influences. So there are, even today, a lot of Gaelic speakers on the island and a thriving Scottish culture there. How about oh, that's that? That's so interesting. I never thought about that. 
I bet they so, make great cookies. Great oh, shortbread. Oh. The Montgomery family settled on the island in the 1700s. Now, here's here's the story for how it happened. Hmm. They stopped there at the island to give a seasick woman named Mary Montgomery some much-needed relief from her illness. Hmm. And once she got on the island, she decided, I'm not leaving. <laughs> yeah. She just would not get on the back on the boat. <laughs> Look, and her husband- as a person who gets car sick often, I, there have been mm-hmm. times where I've been like, I'm going to live at this rest stop on the throughway now. I am not getting back in that car. So I it's understand. True. Yeah. That's pretty much what happened. Her husband was horrified and he begged oh, no. her to get back on the boat. But she just pretty much said, I'm not moving. And he had no choice but to just stay with her. And they settled on the island and made their home there. And huh. that's how it happened yeah i bet and he wasn't were- passive aggressive about that at all for the rest of their yeah, life yeah he wasn't like well we could have been in toronto by now but someone Somebody needed had to stay to- on prince edward island <laughs> well those were maude montgomery's great great grandparents <laughs> her mother's side of the family the mcneils had also been there since the 1700s and they were one of the three founding families of cavendish maude's home village So she had the Scottish background on both sides of the family. The Montgomerys claimed to be descended from a Scottish earl, and Maud's grandfather, Donald Montgomery, was a conservative legislator and then senator. The McNeils were liberals, complete opposite in politics, and they were very religious, staunch Presbyterians, and known for being a very proud family. So now we're on to 1874. Donald Montgomery's handsome sea captain son, Hugh John, he was 33 years old, very dashing, uh, but pretty much unlucky. Didn't ever seem to make anything of himself. Um, maybe not the best prospect. Uh, Clara McNeil was a sheltered 21-year-old, but very beautiful. Hugh John charmed her and married her. Her parents were not enthusiastic about this because, as I said, he just didn't seem to have good prospects for being a provider. Donald Montgomery ended up buying them a small cottage, and they tried to earn money by running a country store. Neither one of them was any good at business, so the store didn't do well. Maud was born eight and a half months after the wedding, and then Clara got sick with tuberculosis, or consumption as they called it back then. Mm-hmm. And Clara died before Maud's second birthday. She was oh. only 23 years old. Oh, oh dear. So Hugh John, as you can imagine, was grieving, plus trying to figure out ways to make a living. And he mostly just left Maud to Clara's parents to raise. And he kept venturing farther and farther away for work, uh, visiting home less often. And then he finally just moved to Saskatchewan and left Maud to be raised by her grandparents. Oh, my gosh. So this was very hard for a little girl. She's growing up with these very strict grandparents who didn't really want to take another child to raise in their 50s and she she was very lonely she had to make up imaginary friends um she had all these kind of abandonment issues but she idolized her father so she didn't want to blame him for what happened so she basically took it out all out on her grandparents Mm -hmm. so you have this traumatized angry kid a grandfather who's mad and resents having to take her in and this grandmother who's trying to do her duty to raise the kid in her strict scottish presbyterian way but doesn't really know how to show any affection Mm. so that's kind of where we are with this small child so they provided all her material needs but there was just this constant kind of being critical of her mm-hmm. kind of watching mm-hmm. for her to make mistakes and some of the extended family 
kind of had this attitude toward her, like, you're a charity case. You should just be thankful for a roof over your head. That's so, so sad. She didn't have, she didn't ask for that. Yeah. Well, She's a kid. Uh, yeah, well, this is, uh, this is something that shows up a lot in her writing. And of course, and when we talk about Anne of Green Gables, that was part of what you see is a lot of prejudice um, having to do with someone's family background. Mm-hmm. You know, families were kind of labeled as, oh, all, all the McNeils are this, all mm-hmm. the Montgomery's are this, or if, or if someone's an orphan, hmm, they're not to be trusted. We don't know who their people were oh, and that sure, sort of yeah. thing. So this is kind of, kind of a, um, uh, clannish, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of bias going on of, of kind of judging people by their family backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And this was, you see this all throughout her writings because this is something that she saw on, throughout her life in the yeah. villages that she lived in. That's just kind of how people categorized each other mm-hmm. back then. Wow. Now, as far as where she grew up, her home in Cavendish village was absolutely lovely. And she had kind of a little bit of a free range childhood, you know, able to explore all the fields and hills and orchards and groves. She had every speck of the place memorized. She later called it quote, a kingdom of ideal beauty. Mm. Uh, she got to visit a, some relatives occasionally in a nearby village and have some fun and laughter. They were a little less stodgy, I guess you could say. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she had a little bit of a contrast to the gloomy McNeil home. And she had this intense determination to be happy no matter what and to find fun wherever she could. She liked to name everything, even all the mm-hmm. trees in the yard. She would give them names. Um, she loved beautiful things, especially clothes. Most of all, she loved to read. She read mm-hmm. everything she could get her hands on, whether it was fiction, nonfiction, poetry. I mean, she would even read her grandparents' books of sermons that they had sitting in their house because she just loved to read. Wow. And her, from her earliest memory, she dreamed of being a writer. Mm. So the best years of her childhood were from about ages 7 to 11 because her grandparents took in two orphan boys and they became her playmates. So oh. she had these two boys that were just kind of like brothers to her and they ran around and had adventures and she had her school friends and it was pretty much the closest she ever came to having a normal family life. Mm. Sadly, they just disappeared one day. (gasps) Are you serious? I'm serious. Um, The the McNeils had made other living arrangements for the boys and that was it. They were gone. No explanations, no goodbyes. Nothing. Oh my God, that's that, traumatic. That's so terrible. They, it was like they thought it was just better that way, just kind of rip the bandaid off kind of thing. And oh my God. so, Maud was lonely again and turned back to nature and books. Now, for all her grandfather's faults, he was an amazing storyteller. Uh, that was sort of a trait amongst some of his family that they were storytellers mm-hmm. and so Maud grew up hearing all kinds of family lore and these other stories you know even stories going back to the uh, Scottish times when the before the family had immigrated and Maud started writing at a young age but she hid her writings because it was considered a waste of time mm. um, by her teens though she was starting to win composition awards at school And finally, she was able to join the local literary society thanks to the support of her school teacher who pushed for her to get to do that. And Mm -hmm. we see this 
happen in her writings of the character of the supportive, encouraging school teacher mm-hmm. coming along to uh, encourage the young girl's ambitions. That is a common theme in her writings. Despite her strict grandparents, Maud had an active social life. I mean, this, I think this is just typical. You can't keep a, a extroverted teenager down, yeah. <laughs> no matter how strict you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she had good friends to spend time with, including a boy who professed love for her. And she just couldn't let him out of what we'd call the friend zone. And she wrote <laughs> years later that she just wasn't attracted to him. And uh, she wrote in her journal, why, why is it the men she liked best were the ones she couldn't love? Uh, This was sort of a recurring theme in her life that she would be really good friends with somebody, but she just couldn't seem to fall in love with them like Mm -hmm. that. Um, She had this idea that love, true love was built on opposites, like opposites attract. And, you know, if you have too much in common, then you can't really have romantic love. It has to be just more of a friendship. So she basically she wasn't a great judge of men. Uh, yeah. She didn't. She didn't have the best example of relationships in front of her. With, mm-hmm. you know, her mother was dead. Her father was gone. Her Those are opposites. Her mother her, is her dead. Grandfather, <laughs> her dad is alive. Yeah. Her grandpa her is me. Her grandma. <laughs> yeah, her grandfather was an overbearing grump, and her grandmother just pretty much gave in, or she just sneaked around to get her own way. So, mm. not the healthiest relationship mm. there either. Yeah, exactly. Then, when Maude was fifteen. Her father, Hugh John, shows up again, and Hugh had remarried, and he decided he wanted his daughter back. Hmm. Happy ending, right? Uh Well, she was thrilled. Maude was thrilled, so she went out to Saskatchewan for a year. Um, Yeah, this turned real quick into a Cinderella situation. Oh, no. Hugh John's new wife just basically wanted Maude there as an unpaid servant. Oh, jeez. She ended up. Even though she was, she had educational ambitions and had decided she wanted to try to train to be a teacher, she ended up having to drop out of school because she had so much work to do at home that she couldn't manage that and going to school all day. So she's basically living as an unpaid servant. Um, But even though she had to drop out of school, she was still able to write. Uh, I mean, really just couldn't hold the girl back and yeah. she this is the point when she's actually started getting some things published and her, so her father was gone a lot on business her stepmother had two young children a toddler and a baby and as long as the housework got done nobody was really paying attention to what Maud was doing mm. so she would finish her work and then she managed to get out of the house and have fun and go tobogganing and she even attended she even went to dances which would have shocked her grandparents mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Her two best friends were siblings, uh, Will and Laura Pritchard. And then as would become a pattern, as we've seen in Maude's life, she had to deal with an unwanted suitor, who in this case was, uh, get this, her teacher in the high school she had attended before having before she had to drop out. Oh, Maude. <laughs> yeah. He was training to be a minister and decided she would be the perfect wife for him. And she was just mortified by the whole thing and couldn't figure out why he kept pursuing her. She finally had to be just really rude to him Mm. to get him to stop. And you know what? Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. Exactly. And um, in the spring, her father and stepmother had decided they'd had enough and they should, (laughs) that she just needed to go back to Cavendish to her grandparents. And they sent her across the country on the train by herself, which was not done back Mm -hmm. then that kind of just goes to show how neglectful and 
worthless Hugh John was as a parent mm-hmm. because the, for anyone to just send their teenage daughter across the country by themselves was not c- considered proper. Right. And yeah. he, he should have done better with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, before Maude left, Will Pritchard gave her a letter in which he declared his love for her. <laughs> of course. This girl. <laughs> I'm telling you, she had something going on everywhere she went. Guys she has falling the in love with her. Yeah, she had the Kavorka. She just had that animal magnetism, you know? Some, yeah. So when she got home, her grandparents had the plans that she was going to settle down and be domestic, uh, stay home, learn to be a good homemaker, and eventually get married, be a housewife. That that was their plan. And um, she was so far behind in her studies now, and mm. her dreams of attending college to become a teacher seemed impossible. Somewhere along the way, her grandmother, McNeil, had a change of heart and mm. Maude didn't ever really know why because you know her grandmother was very I guess introverted and didn't talk about feelings and didn't explain herself but she decided to come up with some money and pay for Maude to go to college for a year oh wow and yeah so this this was a big turn of events for her that finally she's going to get to try to achieve her dream as uh, she only had enough money for one year and okay. the way the college was structured in that time and place was if you could, you had a certain course of study and the average was to do it in two years. Um, the girls who had, or this, I guess young men too, if they had plenty of money and they could stretch it out into three years and have a little more fun, but mm-hmm. the ones who really didn't have as many resources, they kind of had to hustle and try to get it all done in one year to get yeah. that teaching certificate. So that's what she did. She worked hard. She took the double course load, finished her teaching certificate. And after she finished, she got a job in a little tiny poor community teaching in a one room schoolhouse. And she taught there for a year and actually did well and was happy there. But this is about the time when her mood swings were starting to get a lot worse. I mean, she had always been, she'd always been very um, emotional. You know, she, would get very happy about things, get very joyous, and then she would get really low when something was there to make her sad. Uh, This was different because her lows were so much lower. And from our 21st century perspective, it seems pretty obvious reading that there were, she had some mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, probably, um, you know, I would say definitely depression. Uh, There's a lot of things pointing to bipolar disorder but, you know, this is the late 1800s. There was nothing in that time available even to diagnose anything like that, yeah, much less yeah. treat it. So after her year of teaching, she took her savings and in combination with another gift from her grandmother, was able to pay for a year at a university in Halifax. And what she was really hoping for at this point was to jumpstart her writing career and maybe lead, uh, maybe this would lead to a job in journalism. But even though she had a wonderful time living and studying in Halifax, there wasn't a job that came out of it. Mm-hmm. So she went back to Cavendish and took her next teaching job in the town of Belmont, which was close to some distant relatives of hers, the Simpsons. Uh, one of the sons of the family, Edwin, fell in love with her. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Which just surprised none of us at this point. And um, she wasn't sure how she felt about him, but you know, he was a handsome college student. He had ambitions to be a lawyer. He was well-spoken. Mm-hmm. And she was very lonely, and she finally accepted his proposal, agreed to marry him. 
she almost immediately realized it was a mistake. Uh oh. Um, she realized she didn't like spending time with him all that much. <laughs> she was um, repulsed by physical contact uh, with him. Uh, oh no! So his embraces repulsed her, or something like that. Oh, um, to top it all off, he told her actually he wants to be a minister. And oh, that no. was not what she wanted in life to be a minister's yeah. wife. Yeah. So here she was engaged to a guy she didn't like. But again, it's the late 1800s. Getting out of engagements was not all that easy. And it wasn't. Yeah. It doesn't look well upon. So she killed him. No. <laughs> that would be completely and this story. is This is where the story gets weird. <laughs> So fortunately, maybe it had to be a long engagement because he was um, still getting his education. So she got a teaching job in another town. So they had kind of a long distance thing going on, writing letters. And she kept going back and forth in her journals, whether she could actually bring herself to go through with marrying him. And then something happened. The family she was staying with, the Lairds, had a son, Herman. And this time, Maud fell in love. And let me tell you, she fell hard, like completely head over heels for this guy. And it was mutual. He was crazy about her. She called this later her year of mad passion. In her journal, she wrote that when he kissed her the first time, it sent flame through every vein and fire of fiber of my being. Uh, yes, Ooh, things were complicated boo. now. <laughs> so she just kept trying to tell herself why it would never work out because Herman was just a simple farmer. He wasn't intellectual at all. He had no interest in literature. Um, she wrote in her journal that he was only a very nice, attractive young animal. <laughs> oh, that's rude. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that she meant it as an insult yeah. or what. Yeah. <laughs> Worse than that, though, he already had an attachment to a local young woman in the village and everyone in the town expected them to get married uh -oh. uh, so the local gossip at the time was not kind to Maud because they saw her as kind of making a fool of herself over Herman even though she's trying to convince herself this was some grand romance uh, they were pretty much both sneaking around while committed to other people which isn't all that admirable and they were sneaking around every chance they could get scandalous yes scandalous Herman um, Yes. Oh, um, Herman. I, I, um, I don't. Yeah. It's the it's uh, the dreamiest of names. Yeah, it's. I'm. I was wondering if maybe that was maybe that is different had in the 1800s or not. Yeah, but um. Yeah. Names change in perception over time. Um. It got to the point of him coming into her room late at night on more than one occasion after he'd been taking the other girl to some social event. Get out. Yeah, he tried very hard to convince her to sleep with him, but she refused. This is, well, this is still the Victorian age, after all. Um, and, you know, she had been raised with very strict morals. Um, and, but then also she felt like he would have looked, with her, looked at her with contempt if she had mm -hmm. given in to him. So at this point, fate intervened and Maud's grandfather, McNeil, suddenly died. Mm. So... Her grandmother needed her because of the terms of her grandfather's will. He had left the farm to his estranged son. Hugh. So her grandmother had the right to stay in the farmhouse, but she had no source of income or anyone to help maintain the house. Mm. Now, when I say the estranged son, I'm, uh, you remember these, this is um, Maud's maternal grandparents. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. This would be, a this would be okay. her uncle rather than John Montgomery. Okay. I see, I see. So Maud had to leave Herman 
and go to help her grandmother because her grandmother had no means of support. Uh, she had a house to live in, live in, but no way to support herself. Um, this new development also gave her, I guess, the courage and the excuse she needed just to, you know, go ahead and break ties and break up with Edwin Simpson, the guy she was engaged to. All right. Good for her. So she's, she settled in with her grandmother in Cavendish and turned her energies toward writing. About a year later, Herman Laird died of influenza, which was heartbreaking for Maud when she heard about it. To add to that, her father died next year, making her feel like she was truly an orphan. Aww. She felt trapped with her grandmother, and what she wanted more than anything was to be able to earn a living and be financially independent. Yeah. She briefly got a job as a proofreader in Halifax and gradually started earning money from stories she published in newspapers and magazines, but her that had involved leaving her grandmother again, and her grandmother did not do well without her, so Maud had to leave Halifax and go back to Cavendish. She threw herself into village life and her writing and was actually making a steady income by this point with her writing. Good. And everything that she did, her life in the village, she was get, just sort of gathering information. And this village life that she was experiencing and all the, all the ins and outs of her neighbors' lives, she took all that and internalized it. And incorporated it into these mm -hmm. hundreds of stories that she was writing. Yeah. In 1904, Maud came across an old note scribbled in her journal. Elderly couple applied to orphan asylum for a boy. By mistake, a girl has sent them. This was the spark needed to create the character that would make her career. Mm -hmm. She wrote Anne of Green Gables over the next 18 months. First as a series of short stories. Then she decided to make it a full novel. The parallels between Anne's life and Maud's life are obvious. Lonely orphan who only has imaginary friends, taken in by strict elderly people, growing up in a small Prince Edward Island village, struggling financially to pursue higher education. Except, in Anne's case, everything ended up happy. Mm -hmm. So the strict people that she grew up with came around and learned how to show affection. Mm -hmm. She was... She didn't have the same sort of rejection, repeated rejection from people. Anne's life was a little more um, sunshine and roses. Eventually, mm -hmm, yeah. she had the heart, the early heartbreak of being an orphan and being rejected. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the fictionalized what could have been version of Maud's life. Anne of Green Gables was rejected by five different publishers. And Maud was so discouraged by this that she just stuck the manuscript in a box and decided to forget about it. It was another year or so before she found it and decided to try again. And this time, the L.C. Page Publishing Company in Boston accepted the manuscript and signed her to a publishing contract. Anne of Green Gables was an immediate hit. And Maud became famous, and her writing never slowed down at this point. She published oh, wow. She published a new book every one to two years for the next 30 years. Oh, some, my gosh. Some James Patterson output right there. Yeah, just really cranking it out. Wow. Yeah, when you look at the list and it's like this in 1908, this one 1909, this one 1910. Mm -hmm. I mean, she she just she just didn't stop yeah. <laughs> at this point. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. In 1911, after her grandmother's death, Maude did get married to Ewan McDonald. One guess what Ewan McDonald's occupation was. I was going to say, a, did he have a farm? <laughs> no, I was going to say, is he a minister? Yes. No. <laughs> yes. Ewan McDonald had a farm. Come oh, on, it's that's so good. much. No. 
That's a good guess. It's a good guess. I didn't think of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He was a Presbyterian minister. Mm. Um, She was 37 at the time. And it's obvious from her writings that she did not love this man. But Mm. she still felt like marriage was the only real option for women at that time. And she felt friendship for him and thought they could get along together okay. And, you know, she still dreamed of having children. She didn't want to grow old alone. So she just thought, why not? I'll marry him. (laughs) On a personal note, I look at what she accomplished over these next years. And she pretty much seems like a superwoman to me. Mm -hmm, Because, yeah, she's cranking out these hit novels on a regular basis. While at the same time, she, even though she didn't like being a minister's wife, she actually did a pretty good job at it. Um, she, in fact, she was quoted as saying, those whom the gods want to destroy, they make ministers' wives. But <laughs> she was really proud of her abilities as a cook and a housekeeper and a gardener. And she taught Sunday school and led the youth group and organized activities for them. So she, she did her part. She did a yeah. really good job with it. Uh, she also started a second career as a public speaker. And she was making a good income from that. She was, she was in demand as a speaker because of her writings, she, because she was famous for being the author of Anne of Green Gables. And so she got all these lecture opportunities. She did have three sons, but the second one was stillborn. Mm-hmm. And that was another heartbreak in mm-hmm. her life. Mm-hmm. Getting to World War I. World War I took a major toll on Maud emotionally. Uh, At first, she just threw herself into the war effort at home. She was staunchly patriotic. She gave speeches encouraging young men to enlist. She was obsessed with war news, kind of to the point where that's nearly all she could think of. Um, Her husband had always struggled with depression. This was something he had managed to keep hidden uh, from Maude during their courtship, but he started getting more and more lost in his depression and started withdrawing from the family he was a Calvinist. He had become convinced that he and his family were actually not of the elect and that they were doomed. Oh and his depression contributed to her own struggles with depression. Mm-hmm. And she got to the point where she just really couldn't stand him. Um, she oh even considered divorcing him uh, after the war, especially after she nearly died with Spanish flu. And he just didn't even seem to care. I mean, it was oh. almost a... Like, like he wasn't even affected by her Mm -hmm. illness. Ultimately, she decided it was her duty to stay with him. Uh, I think probably a few huge factor in her decision to stay was the fact that divorce was so incredibly rare Mm -hmm. in Canada back then. It was just nearly impossible to get. It would have been pretty much an uphill battle for her to get a divorce. So I think she finally just decided, why bother? Did she kill him? (laughs) She's Sorry, Julia is, I'm Julia waiting is for the twist. For some, for some murder. <laughs> so another difficulty in Maud's life was a 10-year-long lawsuit with her publisher, Elsie Page. Ooh. Yeah, Page was a known bully who had a reputation for predatory contracts. And she just, the contract that she had on the front end was pretty bad in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't nearly what she should have gotten as far yeah. as you know what how many cents she got per copy it was not really a fair contract it's the kind of contract that they give people who are just desperate to get anything mm. right um so but after a while she discovered that he not only was were her terms not great but he was even cheating her out of what he owed her according to the terms of the contract oh. so she switched publishers and sued him for the money he owed her 
And he demanded that she turn over the American rights to her latest book at the time, Anne's House of Dreams. And when she refused, he went ahead and sold the rights to a large American publisher anyway. And as an aside, you know, me looking at this from a 2020 perspective, I can't help but think of like the whole Taylor Swift scooter yes. bomb oh, right. situation. Yeah, and this is this is actually very similar. And I'm thinking, wow, things haven't changed all that much in a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> so, Men okay. still trying to take advantage of women exactly. creators. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, Maud fought him in court for years, and eventually she won. She just Good. kept on going and she finally got the money that he owed her in 1928 and a page had such bad, bad publicity from the lawsuits that authors just started refusing to work with him and Good. the whole the whole company ended up just becoming a republisher of old books Oof. rather wow. than being able to publish new authors a lot you of that stemmed reap from what you so exactly yeah. reap what you sow. So, throughout the 1930s, even though Maud had so much public success with her writing and speaking, privately, her depression was increasing, mm-hmm. and her husband's depression was increasing, and they both ended up addicted to the medications that were given them to treat their depression. Oh, her, no. her husband checked into a sanitarium at one point to try to get better, and mm-hmm. it didn't really help. I mean, they, they were just both really struggling with with these mental health issues and the depression. World War II began, and this was devastating to Maude Mm -hmm. emotionally. Um, Even though, as I said, she had been so solidly patriotic and gung-ho pro-war during World War I, by the time that war had ended, she saw the devastation that Mm -hmm. it had wrought, and she had become a lot more pacifist and she felt guilty for having promoted the war and possibly wow. being responsible for young men going and dying. Mm-hmm. So to see the world going to war again was really just more than she could take. Yeah. Uh, she was terrified that her younger son would be drafted to fight. And here's just an example of what, what she wrote. She wrote this on December 28, 1941, in a letter to a friend. She said, this past year has been one of constant blows to me. My oldest son has made a mess of his life and his wife has left him. My husband's nerves are even worse than mine. I've kept the nature of his attacks from you for over 20 years, but they have broken me at last. I could not even write this if I had not been given a hypodermic. The war situation kills me along with many other things. I expect conscription will come in and they will take my second son and then I will give up all effort to recover because I shall have nothing to live for. Mm. Oh, that's so sad. sad. Yes, yes, she was really in a bad place at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Her last diary entry on March 23rd, 1942 said, Since then, my life has been hell, hell, hell. My mind is gone. Everything in the world I lived for has gone. The world has gone mad. I shall be driven to end my life. Oh, God, forgive me. Nobody dreams of what my awful position is. That's awful. On April 23, 1942, Maud went to the post office to mail a draft of a new book called The Blythes Are Quoted. Um, the Blythes, if you, uh, I don't know if, how familiar you are with Anne of Green Gables' mm-hmm. story, but Anne Shirley married Gilbert Blythe. So yeah. this, is, this is a story, well, not, not a story, I'm sorry, the book loosely based on them. It was actually a ex- rather experimental book, a sort of collage of narrative snippets and standalone stories 
descriptive mm-hmm. passages and poems. It kind of t- time hopped between different periods. Okay. As, so as miserable as she was, um, Maude was still stretching herself as an artist and just mm-hmm. trying new things. So she went to the post office, dropped this book off to her publisher on April 23rd. On April 24th, 1942, the next day, her housekeeper found Maud dead in her bed with a bottle of pills lying beside her. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. I, I didn't realize that she had committed suicide. That's I awful. Oh. oh, my God. So when her son and doctor arrived to her home, they saw a page from her journal by her bed, which they interpreted as a suicide note. Um, mm. it, it may have been... Certainly the way it read, it read that way, but it also had a page number on it. Mm. So it could have been just a page from her journal where she was describing her misery. Uh, But mm -hmm. the family decided they didn't want the scandal of the suicide. Mm -hmm. And the doctor was worried about his own reputation because he's the one who prescribed the pills. Mm -hmm. And so they just decided to cover it up. And (sighs) the official coroner's report said her death was due to arteriosclerosis and a very high degree of neurasthenia which neurasthenia is just kind of a generic term for neurological difficulty Mm. so um it was not until 2008 that Maud's granddaughter came forward and admitted on behalf of the family that Maud's death was a suicide get out i had no idea so um in 2008 uh her granddaughter kate mcdonald butler wrote I have come to feel very strongly that the stigma surrounding mental illness will be forever upon us as a society until we sweep away the misconception that depression happens to other people, not Mm. us, and most certainly not to our heroes and icons. Mm. So she, she, the family decided to come forward with this information as a, to make a statement about mental illness and how it needs to be destigmatized and so that other people can find help. So Absolutely. It's kind of an admirable thing that they did there. Wow. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, neither did I. I mean, obviously I didn't hear about it in 2008, so I <laughs> I had just always assumed I guess that she, you know, lived to an old age and died, you know, naturally, nat, you know, quote peacefully unquote, naturally. in the countryside. Yeah. With a beautiful typewriter in one hand and a Glass right. of scotch in the other. I don't know. What, a, what, <laughs> yeah. you, what do writers that's, do? That's how it should have ended, right? Yeah, but, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. So she was Ugh. 67 years old when she um, killed herself. Wow. Apparently. So her legacy, as I mentioned, she's, her works have sold over 50 million copies. Uh, she was the first female in Canada to be named a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. She was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. The University of Prince Edward Island has an L.N. Montgomery Institute completely dedicated to the study of her life and works. Her Cavendish home and her home in Ontario, where she and her husband served in ministry, are both national historic sites. Uh, Shortly after her death in 1943, she was designated a person of national historic significance by the Canadian government. In 1975, the post office issued a stamp to Lucy Maud Montgomery, Anne of Green Gables, there's a Lucy Maud Montgomery Park in Toronto, and there was a Google Doodle dedicated to her on November 30th, 2015. Uh, so that's the November 30th was her date of birth, and mm-hmm. Google Doodle had a one dedicated to her. 
Tourists from all over the world come to Prince Edward Island just because of the Anne of Green Gables connection. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially popular with tourists from Japan. And um, even Kate Middleton and Prince William made a stop there on their 2011 North American tour because that's where Anne of Green Gables lived. So getting to her works. uh, I'm not going to talk about the 500 short stories. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, good. (laughs) We're just going to cover the novels here. So, Anne of Green Gables in 1908, the book that started it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne Shirley is an orphan who is mistakenly sent to Matthew and Marilla Blythe, two middle-aged siblings who live at Green Gables, a farm near the village of Avonlea. They had requested an orphan boy to help Matthew around the farm, but there was a mistake, and they get Anne instead. Anne is very charming. She manages to win them over and secure a home with them. She's a bright, imaginative girl who sees beauty everywhere. This book tells of her life between ages 11 and 16. She excels in the local school and goes to a nearby college to get a teaching certificate. The book ends with Matthew's death and Anne's decision to forego university to stay with Marilla and teach in the local school. So you see a lot of parallels. Very similar. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very. Now, one thing that uh, Maude always objected to was people assuming that she was like Anne, okay. Which, although although there were similarities in their life, she didn't feel like she was really Anne in right. that yeah. sense. She didn't like being equivocated with Anne. Whereas, like Her, Louisa May Alcott, when she like people assume that Joe was like written as yes. her, you know, personified Alter, on yeah. on page. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. So um, next, the next year was Anne of Avonlea. Uh, which is it covers when Anne was teaching for two years in the Avonlea school. And this is, um, it's a fun book because she's just getting to know all these different characters and there's mm-hmm. just all, all the quirky characters. You know, there's the grumpy old men and there's the uh, young child who is lonely and just the, uh, they're everywhere she goes, she runs into these interesting characters and you can tell that this is, based on all the different characters that Maud grew up knowing in, a, in village life. And her Anne's best friend, Diana, at the end of the book, becomes engaged to be married. And Anne's other close friend, Gilbert Blythe, is showing interest in being more than friends. Mm-hmm. So that's kind mm-hmm. of how Anne of Avonlea ends. Um, Maud took a break from Anne at this point, and she wrote a romance called Kilmeny of the Orchard, 1910, this is about a young woman who doesn't speak due to unknown trauma, but she plays the violin beautifully. And a young man arrives in her village to teach school and falls in love with her. And she is hesitant to marry him because of her disability. And he's trying to find, help her find a cure because he's in love with her and wants her to be able to speak. So it, um, so that's, that's kind of the, the main conflict wow. of the story. Mm. Then in 1911, uh, comes one of my favorites, The Story Girl. Mm. And this is, um, this starts with two brothers, uh, Beverly and Felix King, going to stay with their cousins on a farm on Prince Edward Island, of course, while their father takes a job in Brazil. Another cousin, Sarah Stanley, is also staying there. Um, She's called The Story Girl, and she keeps all the children constantly entertained with her prodigious storytelling ability. Uh, She was the, uh, there is one incident in the book where she was trying to get people to contribute for a charitable cause. And Mm -hmm. she went to this grumpy old man who 
they warned her, he's not going to give you anything. And so she went and asked him and he said, I hear you tell stories. Tell me a story. So he, she told a story that she had heard about his great grandmother Mm. and the other children were horrified because they knew that he would be, he would be insulted Mm -hmm. by the story. But when he heard it, he said, I've heard that story my whole life and I never heard it told like that. Mm. He, he gave her many more money than anyone had given. And then he said, will you do me a favor? Can you recite the multiplication table for me? And she did. And the way they describe it is that it was like hearing some dramatic tale. The way she just, the, the, the girl could literally recite the multiplication table and make it sound like Shakespeare because she just had this gift. So that, that was the story girl. That's awesome. Yeah, that was, so that was in 1911. And in 1913 was The Golden Road, which is the sequel to The Story Girl. Um, the children are growing into adolescence. And uh, finally, the group is both broken up as both absent fathers return to retrieve their children. Jeez. Oh. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, she, she really liked to write about the fathers coming back and having the happily ever after mm-hmm. ending with re- reuniting the fathers with their children, because that's obviously not what happened in her case. Um, Another interesting part about the story girl and the golden road, there is a subplot. One, one of the, the three cousins who live on Prince Edward Island, it's their permanent home. One of the, them is Felicity King. And there's a hired boy named Peter who is kind of part of their group. He's <laughs> from a, um, he, he does, he also does not have, a, he doesn't have a father at all. He, his father had abandoned the family and he's left to make his own way by being a hired boy on the farm. And he's in love with Felicity. I mean, mm. we're talking, you know, puppy love kids. Mm. And she always looks down on him for being a hired boy. But the description written of Peter in the book is very similar to the descriptions of Herman Laird. Um, so it's thought that she wrote Peter Craig a little bit based on Herman Laird. No. Mm-hmm. And it, it ends happily because at the end of the golden road, Peter's father also returns having mended his ways, no longer drinking, ready mm-hmm. to come back and provide for his family. So Peter's not going to be a hired boy anymore. He's going to be able to be educated and uh, make something of himself. And it is heavily implied that somewhere along the way, Felicity and Peter will get married when they grow up. Mm-hmm. So, so she wrote Herman a happy ending. Basically she did. Yes, exactly. Um, So, yeah, Story Girl and Golden Road are two of my favorites. Um, Mm. In 1915, she returns to Anne and wrote Anne of the Island, which is when Anne attends university on the mainland, much as Maude did. Um, She has her, of course, always has her series of adventures and meets her quirky characters along the way. And um, she finally realizes the truth of her love for Gilbert Blythe. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Two years later, 1917, Anne's House of Dreams, Anne and Gilbert marry, and he takes a position as doctor in a coastal village, and then, which of course leads to another another whole slate of characters for her to meet and uh, write about. Oh, this, this one actually kind of takes a dark turn, though, because one of the, um, her best friend that she meets in the village um, is named Leslie, and Leslie was 
she hears Leslie has a very heartbreaking story of being basically forced into marriage with an abusive man mm. who then he took off on a ship off, off on a sailing adventure and was lost at sea and assumed to be dead. But then he was found only when he was found, he had lost all ability to speak, apparently had lost his memory mm. and was basically um, had lost mental function. Mm, uh, so, so she was basically now left to take care of him. She had this husband that she never wanted to be married to in the first place. And then she's stuck having to be his caretaker. Oh, oh sure. Yeah. So spoiler alert, <laughs> it turns out this, the, she, even though this kind of has a dark turn, it has a happy ending because it turns out this was a case of mistaken identity. And he, it, once he had experimental surgery to restore his mental function, it turns out that he is not her long lost husband. He is the guy's identical cousin. <gasps> identical cousin. Identical cousin. <laughs> yes. We're getting a little soap opera yeah. here, you know? Mm -hmm. So as it turns out, her husband had been dead for years and that this was really his cousin. And therefore she was free and did not have to deal with that anymore. Wow. Mm. So it's like kind of what um, Maude was wishing about her husband. Her husband. It seems. Yeah. I think by, by 1917, I, I think definitely, yes, wow. that would be the yeah. case. Um, Rainbow Valley in 1919 is about Anne and Gilbert's six children. And they uh, the adventures that they have uh, with, with the neighbor children of the new minister. And so the minister has four children and these six kids, and they just have a grand old time together. And what I love about when Maud writes about children, she gets inside kids' heads. Mm -hmm. And she remembers what it's like to have really crazy thoughts. You know how kids mm -hmm. just get ideas in their head mm -hmm. and they act in a certain way and you think, why do they act like that? And then you find <laughs> out what they're thinking. And it seems so irrational, but... You know, it makes total sense to them. Just one little, one little episode where um, the youngest child, Rilla, she was sent to the village, said, take this cake to the church for a, for a bake sale or something like that. Mm -hmm. She was mortified because she thought it was shameful to be seen carrying a cake. <laughs> <laughs> and she just acted horrible about it. <laughs> and nobody knew why. And meanwhile, in her head, it was, you know, but because she was being asked to do something so horrible. I mean, it's just, it's yeah, just kind so of an embarrassing. Example. But, you mm -hmm. know, uh, Maud Montgomery knew how to write from a kid's perspective. Oh. Uh, it, it, it seems so ridiculous, but it didn't seem ridiculous to the kid. And so yeah, it's, exactly. it's just kind of fun, especially as an adult now, to read and remember what it's like to be a kid and to get these weird ideas in your head. Mm -hmm. So... Um, <laughs> Rilla of Ingleside, as I just mentioned, Rilla, the next book is named after her. Um, she turns 15 the year that World War I starts. Um. So she is forced to grow up really quickly mm -hmm. as she faces the horrors of World War I and having to kind of stay and be supportive on the home front and watching her brothers and playmates go off to war. And it is, the, I think this one may be my absolute favorite. Oh, apparently, oh, really? it didn't, it, apparently it didn't get great reviews 
but it I think it's I think it serves pretty well as a standalone novel for young mm-hmm. people. If you're wanting to read about that time period and about world war one and about the, um, from the perspective of people waiting on the home front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in 1923, um, Maud had a new character, Emily of new moon. That's my favorite. Is that your favorite? Okay. Yes, I am. I I grew up reading the Anna Green Gable series and I have a very soft spot for Anne, but Emily of New Moon is like my jam. She was my, my girl. You know what? what? Tell me how you feel about Emily of New Moon. <laughs> Tell me why you like it. <laughs> I liked it because she, I liked the, um, I like the kind of like semi orphan thing. And then she, you know, has to live with her aunts and one of her aunts is nice. And one of her aunts is mean. And she has like all of these wonderful adventures. And I like how like kind of magical she is. There's like some sort of like magical realism involved with her stuff. Like I remember Emily could see the flash. She called it the flash where like she, or something would happen in her brain and like every, it would like, it was like a flood of serotonin or so, something would happen. And she called it the flash. And so she would be like totally entranced by whatever was going around, around her. It was usually like nature would trigger the flash or something like that. And she was also, she had like pointed ears, kind of like an elf. And I just really <laughs> loved like the, the kind of like pseudo magical quality of Emily. Plus her, like she had like kind of a, I don't know, like a, a butch friend, best friend, and then like a kind of an artistic boyfriend. And yeah, I just really loved it. I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> How is she in the universe? Is she in, is she in the in universe or no? no this oh, is standalone. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. No, no connection whatsoever. Okay. Now, um, Maud felt more identification with Emily mm-hmm. than with Anne. Yeah. You mentioned the, naming everything. And I think that that's what Emily did. She would name all the trees in her yard and she would name, you know, all of the plants and like she, she gave names to everything. Yeah. Now Anne was a big namer as well, but <laughs> yeah, but, but Maud did feel like Emily was a better representation of her own personality than mm-hmm. Anne. So Emily of new moon was um, 1923. And then the two sequels, Emily Climbs and Emily's Quest, followed quickly in 1925 and 1927. And um, Emily also, she had the ambitions to be an author uh, from a young age. And so, as you said, she's uh, she has love for the beauty in nature and art. She's loyal to her friends, a thirst for knowledge, passionate dedication to her writing. Now, in between Emily Climbs and Emily's Quest, um, Maud wrote a novel more intended for adults called The Blue Castle. I don't know if either of you are familiar with that one. No, but this, is, this, is, this is another one of my favorites. And this is actually one that does not take place on Prince Edward Island. Wow. Uh, but else, <laughs> elsewhere in Canada. This is a young woman who has been basically oppressed by her family her whole life. She's just, um, everyone is just kind of overbearing and she's, a little bit mousy and has never learned how to stand up for herself. And on her 29th birthday, she, she just feels hopeless. She feels like she's never going to get to do anything. She's, uh, she's never going to get to be married or have her own home. She's just going to be stuck living with her mom and other, the other female relatives forever. 
Mm-hmm. And she goes to the doctor. She has to sneak off to see a doctor because she doesn't want her all her relatives talking about it because she's been having some chest pains. And the doctor, in the middle of her visit with her doctor, he gets an urgent telegram and has to leave the appointment. And she got a letter from him a couple of days later letting her know that she had a fatal heart condition and only had a year to live. Oh, my God. And so here she is, 29 years old. She says, I'm going to die, and I've never really lived. Mm-hmm. So she decides that she's not going to go quietly. <laughs> she, oh, decided, wow. she decides she's going to stand up for herself and be who she wants to be for this final year of her life. Mm-hmm. And she takes a position as a, an unpaid position as to take care of one of her old school friends who is dying of, of consumption that, but this, this is a young woman who had had a really hard life and her um, father was kind of a ne'er-do-well drunkard mm-hmm. and not, not looked on well. They were not the right kind of people. And so for this young woman, Valancey is the main character's name. I should have mentioned that to go off and take care of this friend was just, and to go live in this man's house was rather shock, just completely shocking to her family mm-hmm. who were always so uh, staid and Victorian and <laughs> yeah, right. in their, in their attitudes. And she just said, no, I'm, I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that, she meets um, a man who also has a bad reputation, but she gets to know him. And after her friend dies and she doesn't really know what she's going to do next, she tells this guy, I only have a year to live. Will you marry me? Mm. And he does. And so they just have their nice little life together out in the woods. And then she feels like everything that she's just living her ideal life um, in complete rebellion to her family. They're all Mm -hmm. just horrified that she's married this weird guy uh, who has a bad reputation uh, in the village. And as it turns out, it was all a mistake. She does not have a fatal illness. Uh, She's perfectly fine. There was a mix up in the letters. Uh, The letter that she got was intended for an elderly lady who had been having heart trouble for a long time and who Mm -hmm. ended up dying shortly after the letter was sent out. (laughs) That lady got the letter that said, oh, you have nothing to worry about. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And it also turns out that the man that she has married is secretly a well-known author and heir to a pharmaceutical fortune. Perfect. A happy it ending. A happy ending. <laughs> I, now I'm thinking I should have maybe just put a big spoiler alert on all of <laughs> If these books have been out for 80 to 100 years, do not yeah. worry about any kind of yeah, spoiler okay. alert. Honestly. Um, after Emily's Quest, the next book that came out was called Magic for Marigold. And I have to admit, I was not into this too much. I, I revisited it in preparation for this talk. But mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of a, uh, this is the, um, another imaginative young girl whose father died before she was born. And she grew up with her mother and her extended family. And 
that's all I really have to say about it. <laughs> she, she did. She had a, a she had an imaginary friend, Sylvia, that she was always worried that she was going to lose her imaginary friend and lose her ability to communicate. She was very kind of worried about growing up, and as it did turn out at the by the end of the book, she did kind of start to turn loose of her imaginary friend as as she started to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, 1931, I would say, I would call this another more adult book called A Tangled Web, which is members of two large extended families get into a year-long battle over a family legacy. Mm. And you see a family legacy, you might think money. Oh, no. They were in a, just a, almost a battle to the death over a jug. <laughs> not a mansion, no, not no. a not a billion dollars, a jug. It was a jug. a jug that the original matriarch of the family generations before had brought over from Scotland or England, wherever she immigrated from. And this had been passed down through the generations. It was a big, ugly jug. But to own this jug was sort of like meant that you were the big shot of the family. Oh my gosh. And the owner of the jug passed away and she left she left it ambiguous as to who would get it mm. she left it to one of the other one of the other members of the family to decide who would get to have oh, it boy. and so everyone is jostling for position and trying to um, <laughs> trying to make themselves look good mm-hmm. so that they can mm. be chosen to have this jug i find it I, I found it absolutely hilarious. This is okay. one that I this is one that I go back and revisit uh, time and again because mm-hmm. it's just so uh, entertaining to me to see the intricacies of all this family drama mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as they, as they uh, all the different things that happened to them as a result of trying to get the trying to earn the jug. A so little, it's a, a little knives out. But it, it yeah. is, it is a yeah. little bit over a, over a jet without the murder. Um, <laughs> I, I warn people like skip the very last chapter though, oh. because it's not necessary and it has, it has a racial slur at the end. Okay. So oh, I just boy. pretend, to, I just pretend the last chapter didn't happen. Is the and jug it's, full it's of not, money? No. <laughs> Damn. It's just, it's just a jug. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying, I mean, this is a total prestige thing. Yeah. (laughs) Artificial prestige at that. Mm -hmm. Um, Pat of Silver Bush is in 1933, Mm -hmm. followed by the sequel Mistress Pat in 1935. Um, That is more of just a domestic tale of a young girl growing up with her family and loves her home more than anything. And she hates change. Um, It's different. Pat is not an orphan. She has both her mother and her father. So that's that's a little different. Um, But she doesn't really have any ambitions or anything. She's not longing to be a teacher or a writer or anything like that. She just wants, she just really loves her home and her family and her friends and just wants everything to stay the same. same. Yeah. Mm. And she's kind of, so it's more of her internal struggle as life goes on and changes do happen. And she has to try to accommodate to that. Mm -hmm. Um, in 1936, we go all the way back to Anne again. Mm. Uh, this is a this is a novel written in letters. Um, Anne is it's this isn't a sequel to the previous books. This is actually goes in between Anne of the Island and Anne's House of Dreams. Uh, Gilbert is finishing medical school. They're engaged, but they're having to wait till he finishes medical school and so to get married. So Anne takes a, princ- a job as principal of a high school. 
while she while she's waiting. And so this is a series of letters that she's written him detailing her life mm. and all the different people that she meets and is her that her life becomes intertwined with while she's working as a principal in the high school. And it's it's very entertaining. Just she finds herself she finds herself in the position of matchmaker a lot. Helping, mm-hmm. helping couples get together, um, helping the girl defy her overbearing father to marry the man she loves. Uh, you know, that's, that sort of mm-hmm. thing happens in, a lot in this book. Or uh, dealing with the family that doesn't like her for some reason, and she, she has to try to win them over. Mm-hmm. Is, oh, what's and, the title of this? This is Anne of Windy Poplars. Anne of Windy Poplars. Okay. So it's yeah. an, an epistolar, wait. Epistolary, epistolary novel, right? Yes, exactly. There we go. Um, just as an aside, um, I know a lot of, maybe a lot of people have seen the Anne of Green Gables and Anne of Avonlea movies that mm-hmm. were out in the 80s. Yes. I I really like Anne of Green Gables movie. Um, it's maybe a bit heretical, but I do not like the Anne of Avonlea movie mm. because to me, it's just a little bit too fan fiction. Oh, Okay. And, yeah, well, what they what what they did is they took events of Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, mm-hmm. and Anne of Windy Poplars, and just sort of put them in a blender. Yeah, and spit out a, a more formulaic movie. Mm-hmm. And so there were just and and plus just putting in things that never even happened in any of the books. Yeah. So I you know while it's you know very cinematically beautiful uh, and the, the costumes and the acting and all that. Plot-wise, I have issues with it just as a fan of the books. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it did combine events from those three bo- from those three books. Anne of Green Gables movie pretty much follows the book. Yeah, yeah. Plot-wise, wasn't there a Anne series that came out on Netflix? Maybe it was called Anne with an E, and everybody loved it. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, neither <laughs> have I. I yeah. Was- yeah, I was trying to decide, is, is, is my talk going to really include um, film adaptations? And I thought, <laughs> you know, I think I have enough to deal with the bio. <laughs> so we're just going to yeah. stick to that. Yeah, but I think, um, I feel like when it came out, everybody was just like gaga over it. So yeah, maybe it it's worth wonderful. checking out too after yeah, after people read the books. Is, from, what I, from what I understand, it's a little less, um, it was a little less sweet okay. than mm-hmm. uh, the previous adaptations and maybe even a little less sweet than the books. Um, but you know, given what we know of Maud's life, that it may have had a little more realism in it. So yeah. it's worth probably worth checking out. Um, Nineteen thirty-seven, Jane of Lantern Hill. I love Jane of Lantern Hill. Yes, it is very, very sweet. It's beautiful. A young girl finds that her supposedly dead father is not actually dead, but rather has been estranged from her mother for the past ten years, and now wants a relationship with his daughter. Mm-hmm. So we can see where that is coming from. I mean. You know, 1937, this is very late in Anne's life, and she's, I mean, Maud's life. See, I'm getting them mixed up, too. And, um, you know, she's been battling this depression for so many years, and she's obviously still feeling that original abandonment by her mm-hmm. father. I'm starting to feel like if we made a, an L.M. Montgomery title generator, it would just be a <laughs> Mad Libs of, like, girl's name of adjective <laughs> geographical feature. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, 1939 was another Anne book, Anne of Ingleside. And this is another, this is, this would have taken place before Rainbow Valley. So this is, this is mainly about Anne's kids and mainly from the mm. perspective of 
each of her children. Um, each chapter features a different child and just their, some of their little mishaps and adventures that they get into and seeing it from their perspective as young children, just like I was talking before, how she's really good at mm-hmm. getting in the heads of um, the young kids. And as I mentioned before, uh, the Blythes are quoted as the final book that she, um, that she turned in, which was the more experimental that was a mix of short stories and poems. Was it published? Posthumously, it, it was not published immediately. It okay. has been published, but they waited um, several years okay. to publish mm-hmm. that. And I haven't read it, and now I want to after reading about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that that covers it. That is her life. Those are her um, novels, and she did a lot uh, despite all her personal struggles. That was remarkably interesting. I had no awesome. idea what to expect. I mean, I guess I thought that there was going to be some more murder in there than I. <laughs> And there really was, but I feel like I just learned so much. That was wonderful. And I, I mean, I grew up reading these, like a lot of these books and that kind of thing, but I guess I just never knew anything about Ella Montgomery. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Christine. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. Um, and I hear you have a quiz for us today. Yes. I have a quiz for you called Lucy's Mods and Montgomery's. Question number one. At the 2000 Country Music Awards, the duo Montgomery Gentry won the award for Vocal Duo of the Year, beating out the pair who had won it for the previous eight years and would go on to win it another six times for 2001 to 2006. Who is this duo whose 2001 hit, Only in America, was used by both George W. Bush and Barack Obama in their presidential campaigns? Question number two. Maud Hart Lovelace is an American author who is best known for what children's book series about two best friends growing up in the fictional town of Deep Valley, Minnesota? Question number three. The island country of St. Lucia is the only sovereign nation in the world named after a historical woman, St. Lucie of what Sicilian city? Question number four. Montgomery Ward pioneered the concept of mail order shopping and issued its first catalog in 1872, which became popularly known as what? Question number five. To honor the life of Ahmaud Arbery, who was murdered while out for a jog on February 23rd, 2020, thousands of runners participated in a virtual run on May 8th using what hashtag on social media? Question number six. Lucy Hale, star of Pretty Little Liars, first came to prominence on what short-lived reality show in 2003? For a bonus point, give the first and last name of the character Lucy Hale played on Pretty Little Liars. Question number seven. After the death of King Henry I of England in 1135 with no legitimate son, a civil war broke out between his daughter, the Empress Maud, and his nephew, Stephen, over who would be the next ruler of England. Maud is the vernacular form of what name, which Henry's daughter is also known by. Question number eight. What boycott began in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, a key event in the battle to end segregation in the United States? Question number nine. The sitcom Maud 
which ran from 1972 to 1978 and starred B. Arthur, was a spinoff of What Other Sitcom? Question number 10. While it has been a rumor for years, an interview published July 17, 2020 in the New York Times confirmed that Lucille Ball was responsible for the 1984 hiring of what man for a job he would hold for the rest of his life? We will give you about a minute to think about it and be back with your answers. This is a very good quiz. This is a very good quiz. I'm I don't know how good I'm gonna do, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm like trying to take notes and I'm like, I hope Lauren knows this one. I, hope <laughs> I, just, knows I thought this the same one. thing. I wrote Julia question mark and a couple of these. So we'll see. <laughs> All, All right. right. Hit well, us with it, Christine. It. Yeah. Okay. Question number one. At the 2000 Country Music Awards, the duo Montgomery Gentry won the award for Vocal Duo of the Year, beating out the pair who had won it for the previous eight years and would go on to win it another six times from 2001 to 2006. Who is this duo whose 2001 hit, Only in America, was used by both George W. Bush and Barack Obama in their presidential campaigns? I think I know this one, Lauren. I think I might know this one, too. (gasps) Okay, then you can do it. Is it... Well, well. First, let's discuss because I okay. might have. I have I, Brooks and Dunn. I think it's Kicks Brooks and Ronnie Dunn. <laughs> that's, that's their names. I, I saw them live. I saw them in concert. They had a big, beautiful moon, and they sang to it at one point. Um, is it Brooks and Dunn? <laughs> it is Brooks and Dunn. Yes. yes, they had twenty number one songs on the country chart. They won seventeen CMA awards, twenty six ACM awards, and two Grammys. Less than both. Yes. Boot scoot and boogie. That's right. Absolutely. You're going to bring that up. <laughs> the red dirt road, I tell you. Oh, All yeah. right. All right. Question number two. Maud Hart Lovelace is an American author who is best known for what children's book series about two best friends growing up in the fictional town of Deep Valley, Minnesota? Jewel, do you know? Lauren, do you know? I don't <laughs> 
I know I never shell. I, when I worked at Barnes, Schmarns and Bobble, I did not shelve in children's. Ooh. So I- <laughs> when I worked at my public library in my town, I did shelve a lot of children's books. And I don't know. The only thing that's coming up in my head is like Betsy Tacey, but I don't know if that's this author. Oh, I don't even know what that is. I mean, that's a good guess. I yeah, guess. that's my guess. Betsy Tacey. Okay. It is Betsy Tacey. Good job, Jules. Nice job. Here yes. we go. Here we now, go. This this series, this was my obsession as a young child. I didn't discover Anne until adulthood. But Betsy Tacey, those books were great. And I highly recommend them to um, to girls and even boys and to adults as well. They're great books. Huh. Question number three. The island country of St. Lucia is the only sovereign nation in the world named after a historic woman, St. Lucie of what Sicilian city? I mean... What Sicilian city, Lauren? <laughs> I mean, I put Palermo, but that's because that's where the LaRussos are from. I don't know for sure. Um, is that on Sicily? Palermo? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right. Oh, God, now, now I'm concerned. <laughs> Is Syracuse on Sicily, or did I make that up? No, that Syracuse is on it. an island. It's on um, uh, one of the islands in the Mediterranean. Okay. Um, well, then let's say Palermo. Let's I, go. I don't Palermo. know anything else. We may have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's going what's on? the problem? Because my source said that Syracuse was on Sicily, and it's Syracuse. Oh, is it? Oh, then I'm wrong. Then I was wrong. No, that's that's on me. Let's now I'm going to have to go look it up. No, no, no. I'm going to Google it right now. Here we go. Uh, I am I am almost positive I'm 100% wrong. Here we go. <laughs> Window. Syracuse. Sicily. Yes. Syracuse is in Sicily. You are correct. Okay. I feel better now. No, no. It's, it's That's on me. Yeah, All right. Um, St. Lucie was a martyr during the early 4th century, and her feast day is December 13th. And it's a tradition in Scandinavian countries for the young girls to go in procession uh, carrying rolls and cookies. And one young girl will be dressed in a white dress and a red sash and carrying the palms and wearing the crown of candles on her head. I learned and, all about um, that from the Kirsten books from the American Girl series. Exactly. So uh, Lucy's from the Latin word for light, lux. And so uh, and these traditions incorporate the symbolic meaning of St. Lucy as the bearer of light in the darkness of winter. Mm-hmm. Question number four. Montgomery Ward pioneered the concept of mail order shopping and issued its first catalog in 1872, which became popularly known as what? I should know this one. Um, I, I can't think of what it could possibly be. I don't. Tara, if you're listening, you're going to kill me because the because <laughs> the museum has a ton of trade catalogs back in our um, in the research library, as well as some consumer catalogs like the Montgomery Ward catalog and Sears catalog and stuff like dating back to the 19th centuries. And I can't remember. It might be like it might be hmm. color. I don't know. I don't know. Like big, like the big blue catalog or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't remember. Now, this uh, is actu- actually called the Wish Book. The so this Wish is a- Book. Yeah, not the same as the Sears Wish yeah. Book, which came out in 1934. But mm-hmm. they called this, the people started just kind of popularly calling it the 
Wish Book. And uh, the Montgomery Ward catalog business lasted until 1985. I love that. The Wish Book. And if and if people don't know, we're just going to drop this in there. Montgomery Ward is what created Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So he was, True. He was made up by a department store. <laughs> Sorry to crush everybody's dreams. Yeah. <laughs> that actually came up in a trivia quiz I was in not too long ago. <laughs> All right, question number five. To honor the life of Ahmad Arbery, who was murdered while up for a jog on February 23rd, 2020, thousands of runners participated in a virtual run on May 8th using what hashtag on social media? Um, I'm pretty sure that was hashtag running with Maud or run with Maud or the variations yeah. thereof. Yeah. Yeah, that's close. I run with Maud. I nice. run with Maud, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We'll, we'll count that. Yes. Great. All right, question number six. Lucy Hale, star of Pretty Little Liars, first came to prominence on what short-lived reality show in 2003? For a bonus point, give the first and last name of the character Lucy Hale played on Pretty Little Liars. Okay, now I was a Pretty Little Liars fan, like when it first came out, and then it really went off the rails. I think her character's name is Aria. Aria. Wait, now, uh, now I'm confused. Oh, no. Anyway, Lucy Hale was on some show, Lauren, that I always just referred to as America's Kids Got Singing from <laughs> the 30 Rock when they like made their own like reality show about kids yes. singing. And it it's like American dreams or like American stars with a Z. It's some kids with a Z. It's something I mean, the only kids, the only one I can think of is Star Search, but that was in the 80s. No, so that's not America's it. Obviously. America's kids. America's kids. I mean, it's probably a, Kids Got Singing. <laughs> oh, man. American um, Dreams. All right. I like that. American Dreams. You want to uh, give a shot at her character's name? I didn't watch okay, it. I'm so, so sorry. I wish had, I could help you. So you had Spencer and you mm. had um, Emily and you okay. had um, oh, um, the girl that got murdered, but she just wasn't really, she wasn't really dead. She I came swear. back or something. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I want to say it's Aria. And I don't remember her last name right now. Okay. <laughs> so the TV show. You were so close. It was American Juniors. Ah, Juniors. American Which is a, it, was, it was a spinoff of American Idol. So this yes. was right after season two of American Idol when American Idol was just everybody's subject of conversation. And they kept they were capitalizing on the hit. And that summer they had American Juniors, which was you know having kids there. And they picked the kids to perform performed together in a little singing group and Lucy Hale was kind of the one who um, really was the most well-known out of that little group. Mm. And the reason I included her character name as as a bonus point is because her character was Aria Montgomery. (laughs) So close. So I could not resist including (laughs) that. All right. Question number seven. After the death of King Henry I of England in 1135 with no legitimate son, a civil war broke out between his daughter, the Empress Maud, and his nephew Stephen over who would be the next ruler of England. Maud is the vernacular form of what name which Henry's daughter is also known by? What do you I think, mean, Lauren? 
I was thinking Mary. Okay. I was thinking but, Matilda. Ooh, Matilda is good. Hmm. Uh, there have been I mean, way I, more Marys, though. <laughs> I guess. Empress Matilda. Does that sound right? Yeah. Well, I, like, I know there is a Matilda back there somewhere. Oh, okay. Well, let's go with Matilda, then. It is Matilda. Nice yes. job, Jewel. Yes. So um, Matilda was married to, to, so she was the daughter of Henry I of England. She was married to King Henry V of the Holy Roman Empire. And then her son, Henry, would eventually become Henry II of England. And he was the one, the movie, The Lion in Winter, was based mm. on Henry II and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And then their son was Richard the Lionheart. Mm-hmm. All right. Question number eight. What boycott began in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, a key event in the battle to end segregation in the United States? Do you, do you think it's buses, Lauren? Yeah, I think it's buses, Joel. <laughs> is it the bus boycott? It is the bus boycott. <sighs> yes. All right. Question number nine. The sitcom Maud, which ran from 1972 to 1978 and starred B. Arthur, was a spinoff of what other sitcom? You know, I, uh, Julia, this comes up <laughs> easily once a month, I'm sure. Mm. And I can never remember what Maud spinned, spinned off of, spun, spun off of. Spun off. Um, do you know if I like just my like gut answer is all in the family oh but I could be I could be wrong Um, I know it just had so many they had so many spinoffs well what about um uh what about the Mary Tyler Moore show does that sound right that doesn't sound right does it so yeah Mary Tyler Moore you got um you got the Lou Grant show came out of that sure. and Rhoda yep, okay. and then Cloris Leachman had her own show out of that too. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. I always mix up early Cloris Leachman with early uh, B. Arthur, which is wrong. Obviously. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's go with All in the Family because I can't think of anything else. Yes, it's All in the Family. Good job, Ma- Joel. Yeah, Maude was Edith Bunker's cousin. So she appeared uh, on All in the Family, and then they made the spinoff about her. Could you see B. Arthur interacting with that actress, like with, <laughs> with Mrs. Bunker, like yeah, just wild, withering, just withering, withering Lewis's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Question number ten. While it has been a rumor for years, an interview published on July seventeenth of twenty twenty in the New York Times confirmed that Lucille Ball was responsible for the 1984 hiring of what man for a job he would hold for the rest of his life. Do you know, Jewel? I have, I have only like the vaguest of recollections of something like that coming up. Yeah. With everything that's happened this year, I cannot contain any more information (laughs) in this tiny brain of mine. All right. Something Something that started in 84 that was a big deal that continued for the rest of this person's life was Jeopardy and Alex Trebek. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Because he was he was working literally up until like the week he died. So, yeah, let's go with Alex Trebek. Yes, it was Alex Trebek. Oh, that's lovely. Yes. Uh, the, the interview was 
he, he published with him in July, and he acknowledged that Lucille Ball was responsible for, had, had vouched for him to Merv Griffin to hire oh. him. Oh, that's so lovely. I couldn't, I couldn't resist the opportunity to include a small tribute to Alex at the oh, end of this oh. quiz. Well, that was lovely. What a great topic. What, what a, a great... wonderful yes. episode. Oh. <laughs> you did so much better than we could have ever done on an episode <laughs> like this. That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, now I got to get back on reading her books. Like, I got to start buying the paperbacks online yes. or something. Yes, or, or yeah. Kindle. I don't know if or you're a Kindle, reader. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I do. I kind of collect my favorite authors, so I just can flip on my phone to whichever one I'm in the mood to read. <laughs> a good idea that's a good idea i'm gonna gonna start with the tangled web and then maybe i'll go to mary of windy lake (laughs) you're doing that you're doing that title generator aren't you (laughs) yeah i find that oh my god jamie well thank you so much of snowy hills yep (laughs) you're flawless it's amazing what can (laughs) i say hire yourself out um well Thank you again, Christine. This was wonderful. Um, and uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks to everybody who's uh, been, you know, commenting on stuff on on our social meets and uh, sending us messages and thanking for answers from Thorsten. That's been a big <laughs> thing lately. <laughs> I swear, Thorsten is listening to us. I mean, who isn't? I know, right? Hey, dozens of them. No, yeah. dozens of them. <laughs> If you are listening, hey, Thorsten, uh, we've got some good episodes coming up soon, so uh, you can write some questions about that. (laughs) Anyway, um, thank you again to Christine. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. All right. Bye. Bye.